I heard the story of a young father who was patiently trying to teach uh, his 10-year-old how to take care of the yard. It was his regular practice to allow him to do the basic chores around until he was convinced that he could do it by himself. So he carefully instructed his little man with two assignments. Number one, mow the front yard. And number two, get rid of the weeds in your mother's flower beds. So feeling like a great parent for trusting his child with that much responsibility, the father went inside the house to work on other things. Well, in what immediately felt to him like too short a time, the little boy comes bounding in announcing that he had completed both of the tasks. Um, wow, that was quick, the father said. Mind if I go out and check your work? Well, taking two steps outside of his front door, the father's jaw completely drops open in shock and horror because the lawn was mowed and completed, yes, but also his wife's flower garden was completely obliterated. Not a flower intact. He gasps, of course, what did you do? To which the little child said, look, you told me to get rid of the weeds in the flower beds, so I just used the lawnmower to cut them right down. Look, we're starting a new series today that we've entitled My Strange Bible, How to Properly Read and Study Scripture. And I want to introduce the topic this morning by asserting a very simple premise. And that is that for most people, when they encounter problems with the Bible, oftentimes leading either to a rejection of the Bible's authority or at least to maybe a a neutralization of its role in their lives, It comes from a fact that they have a wish for the Bible to be something that that tool was never intended to be. Think about the story of the little boy. This kid was confused without knowing it, wasn't he? In his mind, the lawnmower was a perfect tool to cut grass. Why wouldn't it be just as well to de-weed the flower beds? Well, simply stated, because that's the wrong tool for the job when it comes to delicate flower beds. Well, likewise, when a modern person picks up the Bible, maybe curious about its relevance in her life, she often wants the Bible to be something that it never intends to be. And the category error creates all kinds of problems. Our friends over at the Bible Project mention a number of things in this regard. The first one is this. Oftentimes we wish that the Bible would be a theology reference book for us. That is, when someone approaches the Bible like it's, you know, Christian Wikipedia or something, uh, a source that's helpful really only when you have a question. In other words, when you flip through the Bible just to get information that you need, rather than trying to discern the story throughout, you treat the Bible as if it's an expert resource on theological considerations. How should we fashion the church? How should we deal with the problem of human suffering? Or or how should we understand the the, the humanity and deity of Christ, etc.? Now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) The Bible is a great place to discern those kinds of things and has lots to say on those topics. But to use it only as that misses something, something vital. Secondly, they also mentioned something like using the Bible as a life rule book. You know, modern people oftentimes will appeal to the Bible as their basis for their moral beliefs or maybe their justification for their political conservatism or progressivism, whatever. Now, of course, deriving moral principles from the Bible is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, we would arrive at our moral preferences all on our own as our own authority. 
But the Bible actually begins with a question between Adam and Eve and this whole garden thing, which is, Adam and Eve, who are you going to trust to help determine what is good? Is it going to be humans or is it going to be God? But of course, instead of answering this question directly, what happens is there's a whole dynamic process of God's people learning to align their ethics with the character of God by God telling a story. A story that has Jesus at the center. Hold, new, uh, hold their uh, attention for that one. But lastly, they say often at times people look at the Bible as simply a devotional resource. You ever heard anybody say, you know, I just love reading the Bible. I am so inspired by it. I feel like it connects me to the presence of God. Have <laughs> you ever noticed that whenever people are quoting those passages, they're always reading the, uh, the feel-good passages that skips over the more difficult ones, the ones that leave them with a strong emotional sensation? Oftentimes that can be used to sidestep the Bible's full story. Look, so this summer, Brian and I want to walk through the doctrine of Scripture and highlight principles that we think will help us understand what kind of tool do we have in the Bible so that once we grasp its nature and purpose, we'll deploy it in our lives better, be better equipped to represent it to the secular world, and also have a clear understanding of how to apply it in our own lives. This morning, though, what I want to focus on is this belief that we have had in the Christian church that the Bible is the Word of God. And so when we come to it trying to figure out if it is the Word of God, proof in that regard is actually going to be built right into it. The theologians use the phrase that the Bible is self-attesting. And in trying to explain what that means, I'm going to do it so in three simple points. Number one, I want to look at the Bible and certainty, then the Bible and sufficiency, and then finally the Bible and authenticity. Let's take that first idea of certainty. Look, the parable in Luke 16 ought to be a familiar one to you. Uh, I don't know about you, but every time I ever heard a sermon preached on that particular parable, it was always about eternal punishment and, and, and hell and whatever else. And I do think that that actually is worthwhile. The first half of the parable is a fairly straightforward lesson that the rich man, because he has ignored the poor in his neighborhood, lands himself in eternal punishment for it. Now, that's an interesting topic all by itself, of course, but not actually, in my opinion, the central point of the story. That, I think, begins in verse 27. Look at it again. Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that Lazarus may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Okay, take for a moment. Consider what the rich man is asking there. Yes, it's true that even in hell, he's trying to order the beggar Lazarus around. So it's not like, it's not like the rich man has learned his lesson while he's in hell. But set that aside for a second. Do you realize that his request on behalf of his brothers is actually an objectively good thing? Maybe he's got brothers that are skeptics. Maybe they too have ignored the poor and don't obey God. So the angelic messenger responds to him in verse 29. Look what he says. He says, well, don't worry about your brothers. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. All right, put yourself in, uh, in the rich man's shoes for a second. How satisfied would you have been with that answer to that question? In other words, I have a vivid memory. I've mentioned this before of being a child and pondering the great questions of life on my bed at night. Not sure why this strikes me at night. That's just when it happens. But I remember thinking to myself, how is it that I know that the things that I believe are real and true and right 
and the stuff that other people believe is wrong. And I remember very earnestly praying for a whole season of my life that God would bring an angel into my room, you know, some heavenly apparition that would sort of appear in my room, look at me and be like, Les, it's all true. And then poof, he could go back to doing whatever it was he was busy with, right? And I would walk away, you know, my merry way being satisfied and convinced. Okay, here's my question to you this morning. You've got homework this week. What would convince you? Absolutely. What is it that if you saw and understood that you would say, I will never have another doubt about the Bible and the truth contained therein? What would it be for you? Years ago, I was listening to a a debate uh, between a a Christian and a prominent atheist, a man by the name of Gordon Stein. He died actually a few years ago, uh, who was a philosophy professor at UCAL Berkeley. And in the midst of the debate, the Christian uh, asked the, the atheist that same question, what would convince you? And he said, I don't know, maybe if this lectern that I'm standing in front of rose up and began to levitate across the room, I would concede that the laws of nature had been broken and that there must be a God. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) what's yours? What would you choose that would really convince you that final say-so that would get rid of all those doubts? Because what Father Abraham seems to be saying is that those kinds of proofs, the proofs that we often think that we need, won't work. Look at the rich man's response in verse 27. No, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. Ah, okay. He just tipped his hand. This is what the rich man says he needs. My path to certainty to be able to say that I know what I know is only going to happen when it comes from something else other than Moses and the prophets. See what he's saying? I need more. You didn't give me enough. How can I say that I know what I know when you haven't given me enough to believe in? And so there, seriously, camp out on that this week. What do you need in order for your disbelief and your doubts to disappear? What have you set up in front of God's word before you'll entertain that it is God's word? What will be your path to certainty? That's my first point. Secondly, though, though notice that's implied here is, by, is what is being said about the Bible's sufficiency for us. Because Jesus is making the point that when it comes to being in good stead with God, avoiding the eternal punishment that the rich man wants his five brothers to avoid, all you need is the Bible. In other words, the way to keep yourself from this place of torment is to listen to Moses and the prophets. That phrase, by the way, Moses and the prophets, is the Bible's way of referring to the entirety of the Word of God. All you need for health and for life and for faith and for the practice of godliness is contained within the pages of this book, Jesus says. I find it more than a little interesting what what Father Abraham does not say. In other words, he doesn't say, look, what your brothers need first is to be convinced that the word of God is true. Then maybe they'll read it and commit their lives to living by it. It's not what he says. (laughs) He says, no, this is what you need. In other words, the convincing mechanism, if you will, of believing is only going to be obtained by listening to the Bible itself. That's weird. I know, but bear with me. (laughs) That's why our creed says things like the scripture is the only rule of faith and life. The Bible is enough for every intellectual, emotional, and volitional objection that might be raised against it, Father Abraham is saying. There is nothing that can be received from any other source 
that could possibly be more valuable for you than what is contained in this book. That's what Father Abraham is saying. You know, if you go back in the Old Testament and read places like Psalm 19, you'll find the psalmist there unpacking this lyrical uh, poem about the value of the Word of God to God's followers. It says there that the Word of God revives the soul, that the Word of God leads us into the truth, even the simple, that it brings joy to know the Word and to find the Word. In other words, what Psalm 19 is saying is, is that when you ask yourself as a Christian, what I need most in this life, what do you come up with? This is what you need, Jesus is saying. You don't need a book on how to have a better prayer life. You don't need a more exciting praise and worship service. You are not lacking an experience with the Holy Spirit in a, in a second blessing or something. You're not needing to find a new spiritual discipline regimen or, or an accountability group or maybe just a little extra effort in obedience. No, the Word of God and the law of God, that is what revives the soul. So much so that the Bible and the conception of what it means to be a spiritual person at all are absolutely inseparable. We could go so far as to say that spirituality at all is responding to the written word. So much so that if you try that list of things I just listed, none of which are bad in themselves, by the way, would that we would read more books on prayer and, and, and better worship and all those things. But if they're abstracted from the word of God, what you're going to find is they do the opposite of what you intended them to. They won't bring you life, they'll bring you death. They'll actually, what they'll do is they'll wear you out because they'll burn you out spiritually when they're abstracted from the life-giving word. That is what changes us, is the law and the prophets. So that's what we mean when we say that the Bible is sufficient in that regards. Which brings me to my third point. Not only the Bible and certainty and sufficiency, but finally the Bible and authenticity. I love this because this is what I want to focus on. Because why is it that the rich man is wrong? That's my question. I mean, seriously, do you not think that it would be compelling to you as an, as an observer of life that if you saw someone die and then come back from the dead, that that would not be compelling or convincing to you? I mean, even more so, why does Father Abraham suggest that the Scripture alone can create genuine trust in the Scripture itself? Because the Bible, it seems to be saying that the best evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible is the Bible itself. That the Bible stands alone. That the Bible is critiqued by no one except itself. It is the, the believing person's authority. It comes as authoritative, which is why it's authentic. Because it is the Word of God. <laughs> Let me put it completely obnoxiously. How about this? Why do I believe the Bible to be true? Because the Bible says that it's true. Now look, I am purposely trying to trigger the smart people in the room. Because I get your immediate issue on this point. You're like, there you go. At least you finally admitted it. You are those fundamentalist types who you're asking me to just take it at face value. You want me to be that kind of person there, preacher man, who tells me that the reason why I can't jump over into this is because I don't have faith. Well, you know what? You're right. I don't. I'm not that kind of person. I can't just take things at face value with the same kind of faith that you have. I need proof. And your belief in the Bible is arbitrary and circular. 
because they remember those words from philosophy one-on-one when they were in college, right? Look, but in dealing with this issue, can I simply offer you three thoughts? Three simple thoughts about the authority of the Bible that people rarely take into when they're thinking about these things. First is this. If you think that I'm saying to you that what it really takes to embrace the Bible is that sort of blind leap of faith into absurdity, you got it wrong. I'm absolutely not saying that. I got this all the time when I was in campus ministry. Someone comes up and they offer objections to the Bible. Maybe it's internal consistency. Maybe it's um, problems with textual transmission. Maybe it's um, uh, uh, contradictions across verses, right? You present, they're presented to someone and they say, well, I know those things are there, blah, 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 blah. But that's why you have to have faith. You ever heard that? You ever thought that? Because that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Blindly accepting the Bible's authority without careful consideration as to why there might be good reasons to do so is not what we are advocating. No, no, no. Our intellects need to be engaged in this question of whether the Bible is something that we can really build our lives on. It's what this whole series is about, quite frankly. That's the first point. I ask you to accept something in faith. Secondly, though, we believe that the Bible is the last word because it has to be. Now, bear with me for a second and don't get lost. The Bible claims to be the revelation of God. But please understand, it is not the revelation of just any God or benign deity. In other words, you have to keep in mind the kind of God that's being presented before you question how he's going to reveal himself. Follow me on this. The Bible, the God of the Bible, presents himself as a being who is completely non-contingent. That is, he's not derived by or from anything. He just is. This God is self-existent. The theologians say that he is self-contained. They use a big fancy word uh, to describe this attribute, that it is God's aseity. His aseity simply is that property whereby existence comes out purely from the fullness of his own being. He lives on the, on the dependence of no one or no thing. And it's only when you frame that question properly can you understand why Jesus talks the way he is. Because if that kind of God is going to speak to us, it has to be our final authority. Look, think of it this way. Let's imagine that you own a company and you are putting together a very, very important presentation. You have to land a client that will completely change the future of your business. If you get this client, life will never be the same for you and your business. Here's my question. When you prepared that presentation, why did you not present that to your second grader to grade and critique? Now, no offense against your second grader. I'm sure your second grader is unusually bright. (laughs) But you did not submit that to. Why? Because the distance between your intellect and your second graders is so great that it would have been absurd to submit it that way. You follow my point? If there is a God and he was going to write a book, who's going to grade that paper? You follow me? Because Christianity teaches that this book is not just a collection of religious sayings passed down throughout the ages. These are the very words of God. Therefore, there is no higher authority that the Christian can claim than what the self-contained God has spoken. When that God speaks, who is going to check him? which is the reason why we use the language that the Bible is self-attesting. 
it attests to its own authority. Not, by the way, because we're afraid of you examining it. That's not it. Quite the contrary. Frankly, I would make an argument that there is no book in antiquity that's ever been scrutinized quite like the Bible. And by the way, we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. And also another thing is the Bible has come out smelling like a rose. Just about every generation of objections that have been raised against it. More on that later. What I am simply saying is that if you're going to believe that there is a God and he's all-powerful and all-knowing, if he decides to speak, the only one who can verify his word is him alone. Does that make sense? I didn't know there would be this much philosophy at church this morning. Les, why did you do this to me? Now, I realize some of you are out there and you're saying to yourself, no, 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 Les, that's a circular argument that you're making here. You cannot assume the Bible is true because you say it's true. Now, be careful when you start leveling that because don't be too confident about that. Because if you really think about it, you cannot say that you know something without trusting in something to say that you absolutely know it. You ever thought about this? You may say to yourself, Les, I'm one of those people who trusts the science. Now, I'm not anti-science, but you may be a person who says, I trust the science. Okay, knock yourself out. But you do understand that science itself it can only verify itself by, ready, science. <laughs> you always argue in a circle whenever you get down to the most fundamental basis of how you draw truth in life. You might be a person who trusts the opinion polls. You might be a person who trusts uh, the, the, the gurus, whatever. You cannot say you know anything without trusting something. And most people's objections when they come to the Bible are often sort of driven by this point of realizing that they've not understood that you have to stop somewhere. You have to stop somewhere in your reasoning. The Christian's simply saying, I stop at the Bible. That's my foundation. Which brings me to my third and final point, and the, le- and the most uh, offensive. <laughs> Say the best for last. And it's simply this. The Bible is the last word because you and I are not objective. Bear with me. The Bible has this deeply compelling take on how we interact with the Bible because of the fact that human beings are not objective arbitrators of truth. You know, most objections to the authority of the Bible, whether it's Christianity in general or whatever, you know, assume that humans are uninfluenced, unbiased judges. You just give me the facts. If you give me the information, I'll figure it out. But the thing is, this just is not the case, and you know it's not. Let me take a hyper example. Let's take a young woman who's wrestling with anorexia. Everybody can see her condition. You can bring as much information as you want, but the more you talk to her, the more you realize it's like she's got an anti-skinny bias that she's built up inside of her head that won't allow any information that disagrees with her conviction. The Bible says human beings were born with an anti-God bias. In other words, we were born with, as rebels to the knowledge of God. We take the facts themselves and we mold them to our own selfish, godless ends. So much so that I think it's fair to say that the facts really don't just speak for themselves. Because human beings cannot just be presented with information and expected to come to right conclusions about it. Boy, don't you love how often we are trying to convince ourselves that what people need is education. We're doing our best to educate the young people on the problems with drugs or alcohol, whatever it is that we're upset about at the moment, right? If we could just educate the public over X, Y, and Z. (laughs) But don't you hear the assumption in that? The assumption is that people are going to do the right thing with the right information. 
But our history, of course, shows us that the, the exact opposite is true. It reminds me of that old joke my dad used to tell about the, um, the crazy person who goes to the uh, psychiatrist because he thinks he's dead. And the psychiatrist is like, hmm, okay. Uh, well, let me ask you this question. Do dead men bleed? Crazy person's like, well, I don't guess so. So the psychiatrist grabs his finger and pricks his finger and out comes a big red drop of blood. To which the crazy person looks and goes, oh, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. It's a little bit funny. Look, here's the point. Someone can be more committed to their deadness than they can to the evidence they thought they had. Now go back and look at verse 31 in chapter 16. Because Jesus is saying, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced. Even if someone rises from the dead. Hey, who is Jesus talking about in that whole rising from the dead stuff? He's talking about himself. <laughs> I'm going to rise from the dead. And guess what? It's still not going to be enough. You think you need to see somebody raised from the dead. I'm going to do it. And it's still not going to convince people. Why? Because as sinful creatures, we are not objective in dealing with the facts. I had a therapist of mine tell me one time, Les, if you were being deceived, would you know it? That'll bake your noodle. Uh, no, because that's the definition of being deceived, isn't it? <laughs> in other words, most of the deception that we experience in life comes from outside of us. Somebody's deceiving me. They're lying to me, right? And i got to break that deception by getting the truth out of them. But here's my question for you this morning I want to leave you with. What happens when the deception comes from within? What if the lie is coming from my own way of looking at the world? Look, here's the point. What, what Luke 16 is saying and what Father Abraham is saying is that what every human being needs is a word from the outside. A word from the outside. What if Jesus is saying, I am the word, become flesh, and even more, I have decided to reveal myself most substantively for those coming after me through a book, through the scriptures, through the writings. Now, look, that means a whole lot of things. It means, first of all, that when we begin to think about our spirituality and what I need as a Christian, it's got to be centered and grounded and rooted in the Word. It's got to be a Scripture-rooted hope. It may mean that I make a decision sometime this summer to say, you know, when the fall comes around, I'm actually going to either join or form a small group of people who are going to do nothing more than commit ourselves to looking through the Bible. Book studies are great. Accountability groups are great. All those things are great add-ons. But the central feature has got to be to commit myself to the understanding and digestion of this book. Second thing that it also means this morning in closing is simply this. If you're sitting there with a Bible open in your lap this morning, you have the most dangerous possible thing that you can have in your life if you're committed to the status quo in your life. In other words, if you like the way things are, don't do this. <laughs> don't be here. Don't get involved in this word because it'll start to work on you. It'll start to rock you. It'll start to mold. It'll start to crumble. More on that in the weeks to come. But here's my question for you. What are you looking for in the pages of Scripture? What would convince me? What would make me move towards it? Because according to Father Abraham, it's only the Bible itself. Let's see if that's true. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you lead us into that a new appreciation, because if it's true, only your spirit is going to be able to convince, of the, convince us of the truth of these things. And so, Father, if you would come alongside us this morning, we would be better for it because we would come to love and know your word and see your real, real presence 
inhabit it. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.